Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already subscribing to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, well, is it over already? Donald Trump's double-digit percentage victory in the New Hampshire Republican primary on Tuesday followed his big win last week in the Iowa caucuses. Now, it's extremely rare for a candidate who's not an actual incumbent president to win both of those contests, and it's actually unheard of for someone to win both and to go on to lose his party's nomination. And still, Trump is an incumbent of sorts, and his double victory does actually look decisive already. Nikki Haley, his sole remaining serious opponent, vowed to fight on. She faces a big test in her home state of South Carolina in a month. With Trump so dominating in the party, will she really risk the potential humiliation of a hefty defeat on her home soil? Or will she, like Ron DeSantis after Iowa, and indeed all the other major candidates, now withdraw and throw her support behind the party's apparently inevitable nominee? Whatever she decides, and barring some completely unforeseeable events, it does look as though we're on for the November contest that everybody expected, but far from everybody likes. That's Trump, of course, versus President Joe Biden. Biden himself handily shook off a long-shot challenge in his own party's primary contest in New Hampshire. So what have we learned from this short and apparently moribund primary season about how the general election may pan out? Trump won a huge majority among registered Republicans in New Hampshire, but Haley won big with independent voters, according to exit polls. And a large number of Haley voters, that is, say they won't vote for Trump in November. Does all this augur ill for Trump's prospects of winning among whatever the pool of swing voters may be in November? And indeed, may he even lose some support among Republicans who seem unhappy with him? And with voters generally still expressing disapproval of both Trump and Biden, could we see a third party candidate emerge? Well, with me to discuss all this this week is veteran pollster and political commentator Doug Schoen. Doug's been in the polling business for half a century. In the 1970s, he co-founded the firm of Penn Schoen with Mark Penn, and they were later joined by Michael Berland. And he's worked with innumerable candidates over the years in the United States and overseas, including perhaps most famously both President Bill and Senator and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. But he's nothing if not politically independent. And in recent years, he's been a fierce critic of the direction that the Democratic Party has taken. He's the author of several books, including America in the Age of Trump, Opportunities and Oppositions in an Unsettled World. And Doug Schoen joins me now. Doug, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. My pleasure always, Jerry. So, Doug, we're recording this the day after the New Hampshire primary. Solid win for Donald Trump on the Republican side. And we can talk about what happened on the Democratic side later. But let's start with the Republicans and Trump. He's now won Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't think that's ever happened before when a candidate hasn't then gone on to win the nomination. This has been the story for the last uh, year or more that Donald Trump seems unassailable. Is this primary effectively over? Yeah, I think... I think the primary is effectively over. I mean, the polling nationally outside of Iowa and New Hampshire has him 30 points or more ahead. Nikki Haley has really very little credibility, having had a double-digit loss in New Hampshire. I think the Republicans would be doing better if they all rallied around Trump and shared the inevitable with Nikki Haley and importuned her to uh, abandon her candidacy. 
lots to talk about. Well, let's talk about the stakes for Nikki Haley then, first of all, because again, we go from here, we have this kind of slightly strange bifurcated primary caucuses in Nevada, which I think probably most people will ignore. And we've got the South Carolina primary a few weeks after that, towards the end of February before Super Tuesday. South Carolina is obviously particularly significant for Nikki Haley since it's her home state. What will be going through her mind right now? Again, you've said in the polling in South Carolina is pretty grim for her right now. We'll have to see whether she gets any sort of a lift out of New Hampshire. I guess no reason to expect that she would. What's the calculation here? Does she keep going? We, the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning made the point that, you know, she should keep going. There's a lot of contests to go. We're very early in the process. Things can happen. Trump's got his trials to come. We don't quite know how people are going to react to those. At the same time, she goes and she carries on South Carolina and gets hammered in South Carolina, her home state. Could be a pretty serious blow to her political prospects. How do you weigh it up? Yeah, let me try to analyze what's going on in her head as a political consultant. She knows she's not going to win. She understands that. But there is enough chance that Donald Trump could have some unexpected problem with the legal system, with health, with his behavior in some way, that she's saying, the longer I hang on, I'm the nominee if he, for some reason, falters or can't go forward. That's got to be the calculation because there's no rational basis for her to proceed. At the same time, she knows that she'll keep losing. She knows she will alienate herself from the Republican base by continuing. And what I think the calculation is now is, look, she's crossed the Rubicon. The base is angry at her. So hang around, hope against hope that something happens and that Trump is unable to go forward. That's got to be what she's thinking, Jerry. Can't think of anything else. Okay, let's play that game. Say you are advising her right now. What do you advise given those two choices? Well, I mean, I would tell her to get out because I don't think it's a good bet. But if her view is, I want to play this out, I would say, go forward, make your case. Do not run harsh negative against Trump, given his overwhelming popularity. Make it clear that your argument about chaos versus no chaos, a path forward versus uncertainty and instability is the issue. Be prepared for loss after loss and hope that lightning strikes. That's about the best I could do for her because I don't think there is a path forward where she can win. I guess the risk of continuing in any form is particularly acute with Trump. I thought his victory speech, if you like, last night was sort of characteristically Trumpy. Rather than, you know, striking the tone of either joyful celebration or warm conciliation, it seemed kind of bitter. It's almost as though he'd lost and was like lashing out at his enemies again. And so that gave you a taste, I suppose, that if this contest is prolonged, of just how much he might go after Nikki Haley as the last woman standing against him now. And the damage that that could do, (laughs) whatever he does, his damage is much greater to the people who cross him rather to him himself. The damage that would do to her, that's a particularly high risk, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, again, if I had been asked, which I most assuredly wasn't, to tell her what to do, I would have said last night, say the voters have spoken. It's clear from everything we've seen that they're going in a different direction. I have differences, but I want, as I've made clear, for there to be a Republican president, and I endorse Donald Trump and will do everything I can to elect him. I think that would have helped her, helped her for the future, and potentially helped her vis-a-vis the vice presidency. But as she goes forward, I think it becomes more certain that she's alienated from the party, 
certainly alienated from Trump and becomes more isolated and frankly, less relevant. I want to move on to vice presidential picks and to many other things too, including the behavior of independent voters in New Hampshire. There's a lot to talk about there. But since we're on Trump's once and current opponents in the Republican race, Ron DeSantis pulled out quickly after Iowa, quick endorsements. What's his future? Well, I think his future is frankly pretty limited, but if it's going to be more expansive than what I am hypothesizing, he needs to repair his position both in Florida, where his numbers have gone down, and repair his position nationally. And that means making peace with Donald J. Trump, which is certainly clear to me what he has started to try to do. And I suspect he will do with vigor going forward. We saw Tim Scott kind of slightly abase himself, uh, rather embarrass himself last night at Trump's victory party with that rather cringe-making statement that, you know, it wasn't that he hated Nikki Haley, but he loved Donald Trump. Any of the other candidates that you've seen in this Republican primary, they have much of a political future, do you think? Perhaps Vivek Ramaswamy. Oh, I'd almost forgotten about Vivek. How could I? Yeah, no, I think Vivek uh, will be part of a Trump government. I think he will probably, if Trump wins, be in the cabinet. And I think while he had some bad debates at the end of the campaign, he is clearly a talented guy, clearly a believer in the ultra mega strategy, and clearly somebody who, as much as anyone could stay loyal as an opponent to Donald Trump, Vivek uh, did the best he could to avoid needless confrontation. So let's quickly talk about vice president picks. You've been through this process many times with candidates. We always know that the calculations that go into this, usually looking for someone who kind of compliments, in Trump's case, compliments with an I, as well as obviously with an E, compliments the presidential candidate. But compliments, I mean, with an E in the sense that usually look for someone from a different section of the party, from a different part of the country, maybe someone of a different gender these days and different ethnicity. What's your thinking there as Trump? Trump now begins to look at that process more seriously. What's your thinking on the Trump's vice president? My sense is the area that he needs the most help is with women and with moderates and independents. My sense is that Haley is too estranged from him to be considered. That leaves, in my judgment, Christy Nome and Elaine Stefanik. And my sense, both reading the press and drawing whatever conclusions I can from what's gone on is that Stefanik offers him the greatest degree of a younger generation, loyalty, a Harvard graduate, Ivy League, and somebody who vis-a-vis January 6th has been a zealous advocate of the president and an opponent of anti-Semitism at a time when that will, again, arguably pay dividends. So she'd be my front runner. I think Christy Nome is in the race, but is less likely than Stefanik. Tim Scott, notwithstanding his speech, is clearly someone Trump will consider. But again, I think that there is a greater benefit, arguably, from Stefanik than from anyone I can think of. So let's dig into the details of what happened in New Hampshire, because there was some very interesting, if the exit polling is brought, is roughly to be believed, there were some very interesting details. The, the most obvious and striking is this extraordinary divergence between Republican registered voters and independent registered voters. And the numbers I'm looking at, according to the exit poll that was done, Trump won 74% of Republicans and Haley won 25% of Republicans. For independents, Haley won 60% of independents. Independents obviously couldn't vote in the 
Republican primary. And given the strange state of the Democratic primary, probably many of them were encouraged to do so. And among independents, Haley got 60% and Trump 38%. That's an astonishing divergence. And according to some pollsters who measure these things over time, that's the largest divergence in a Republican primary contest between the way registered Republicans voted and registered independents voted. That on its face seems to suggest that while everything we know about Trump's grip on the Republican Party is absolutely true and enduring, it does seem to suggest some real problems for Trump, doesn't it, in a general election environment? Oh, yeah. The Democrats want Trump to be the nominee, and they're comfortable that ultimately, as we saw yesterday with the beginnings of the national abortion rights tour, that they believe they can win independence and win women because of what you're citing, Jerry. So, yes. And look, the polls now are showing Trump was somewhere between a one and three or four point lead. Yes, it's a lead. It's also close to the margin of error, if not within it. And the Democrats are saying, you know, over time, the minorities will come back, particularly African-Americans, will win independence, even though Trump is now narrowly ahead with independence. And we Democrats will play the gender card and it will work as it's worked in the last two or three elections. So that's the calculus. And I think ultimately that leads Trump in the direction of Stefanik. Is Trump doing well with independence? I know I've seen the national polls uh, as you do, and it does seem to suggest that he has a slight lead among independence. The voting out of New Hampshire, and even to some extent out of Iowa, which of course is a much more sort of heavily Republican electorate, but some of the questions again from the, what was the entrance poll in Iowa, the exit poll in New Hampshire about whether or not people would vote for Trump if they were the nominee, does seem to suggest that, well, let's talk about this first of all. There's quite a significant number of Republicans who, at least as of now, I don't have the number directly in front of me, but there was a significant number of Republicans in the New Hampshire primary who said they wouldn't vote for Trump if he was the nominee. They obviously voted for Haley. Much higher than is normally the case when somebody votes for the losing candidate at a primary, they usually rally around the winner or at least say they will eventually. Is that something that Trump should worry about, that actually he may actually be at risk of losing you know, quite a significant number of, uh, of Republican voters too? Well, I think they're not going to vote for Joe Biden. Whether they turn out or not is the real question. There is a consolidation process, Jerry that goes on through a campaign. So I suspect that many of the people who say now they're not going to vote for Trump probably will. But it is an issue that I can tell you if Nikki Haley were the nominee, she would not have a problem at all with Republicans. And she'd do very well with independents, which is why the Democrats are so enthused about Trump being the Republican nominee again. We've got used to this highly polarized electorate in which energizing the base, getting them out to vote. By the way, frankly, whether it was Barack Obama, perhaps famously in 2012 when he faced a very tough re-election prospect and I think was helped by being able to mobilize the base as opposed to winning over independence. How big is that middle ground of independence? What role do they now play? And, and is it possible essentially to have a kind of a base election where you really, really energize the base, even if that means losing independent voters? Or do you still need to be able to bring across a significant number of those independents? He needs Jerry, somewhere between 47 and 53 percent of the independents to win. So you can't just run a base election. But that being said, Trump's theory of the case, which is different than virtually any politician I've ever seen, is first and foremost, run to your base. When in doubt, go back to your base. When I worked with Bill Clinton, we were always reaching out to the center and even sometimes to the center right. And Obama did the same thing himself, as did George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush 
before him. So you do need an appeal that is broader than your party, but increasingly, as your question suggests, politics has become more and more advocacy and mobilization of your core constituency than it is building broad coalitions. There are some people who look at those results, Iowa and New Hampshire now. They say, look, here's the negative case for Trump. Here's the critical case for Trump. Trump is essentially the incumbent, right? He was the president. (laughs) Many of his supporters believe he still should still be the president if the election weren't, as they claim, stolen from him. But he was the president. When a former president or incumbent president decides to run for his party's nomination, it starts with enormous advantages. So he's in the kind of de facto incumbent on the Republican side. Yet he got 51% of the vote, I think it was, in Iowa. 54%, I think it is, in New Hampshire. That's not the kind of numbers associated with incumbency. We'll come along in a minute and talk about Joe Biden. Again, that rather odd primary in New Hampshire, but numbers seem to suggest even with a writing campaign, Biden got 70% of the vote. Trump, obviously, in 2020, got far, far larger shares of the vote running as the actual incumbent. Are these themselves, as 51, 54% bare majorities of Republican primary voters in those two states, are these themselves kind of warning signs for Trump, or do you downplay that? Well, it's two states. There were multi-candidates in Iowa. Haley, as we've said and we all know, a unique appeal to independents in New Hampshire, where there were almost half the turnout on the Republican side. And we know from the national polling that Trump has weakness outside of the core of ultra-MAGA Republicans. So I would say it's more a ratification of the national challenges that Trump faces that we see every day, not only in our media, but in our polling. Let's briefly talk about the Democrats, which we've kind of touched on a couple of times. As I just said, Biden won that kind of write-in campaign, got a solid 70% of the vote. Dean Phillips only got 20% of the vote. People had made bit of a stretch. I've done it myself in some stuff I've written, comparisons with maybe, you know, the damage that an incumbent can suffer in the New Hampshire primary. Lyndon Johnson famously in 1968, George H.W. Bush, I suppose, in 1992. Does that performance yesterday pretty well kind of lay that narrative to rest? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Phillips had to get, I think, somewhere close to 30 percent and hold Biden somewhere under 65, closer to 60. And if a write-in campaign that the White House apparently was not directly involved in got him close to 70% or perhaps a bit more when all the votes are counted, it says to me that Phillips, an obscure congressman, has effectively proven that Biden will get the nomination without much problem. So I think that's pretty much resolved. And same there on the same side, Kamala Harris, vice president, you expect any change there? No, she'll be there. Given how Biden was nominated in 2020 by largely African-American electorate in South Carolina, Kamala Harris was, I think, a political result of that endorsement by Jim Clyburn. And I don't think anyone is going to challenge Kamala Harris for the second position on the ballot, notwithstanding her obvious political weakness herself. All right. So it looks like he survived or well into surviving any long shot primary challenge. But there are still Democrats. I still talk to some of them who say it kind of sotto voce that there is still another route by which Joe Biden may not be the nominee, by which somebody else is the nominee. They look at Joe Biden's terrible approval ratings, really bad opinion numbers. We've seen some polls recently having him in the low 30s, even as for an approval rating, you know, on average, maybe in the high 30s, but terrible for an incumbent president. They don't see that getting 
any better with the kind of array of challenges, immigration, perhaps a deteriorating economy, global crises. And they see he's getting maybe okay to the end of the formal primary process where he's faced no serious challenge and headed that off. But still, maybe, you know, he will be prevailed upon to stand down then. Then we have an open convention and the Democratic nominee gets picked that way and they end up with a much stronger candidate than they look like they have right now. You know, the Democratic Party, Doug, any chance of that happening? Well, I think for that to happen, Joe Biden has to make a decision himself to stand down. And everything I think we've seen so far suggests that if he can be a candidate, he will be a candidate. And certainly his behavior and activities only support that conclusion. Now, if by the summer there is a sense that his numbers are sinking or his infirmities appear more pronounced than they are now, there's always certainly the possibility he could stand down. And in that instance, I think the likely nominee, not the certain nominee, but the likely nominee would be Kamala Harris. We're going to take a break there. When we come back, I'll have more with Doug Schoen talking about election 24. We'll be looking ahead to the prospects of the general election, and in particular, what chance there might be of a strong third-party candidate showing. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Doug Schoen, pollster, political consultant and commentator. We're looking back at the very brief and apparently pretty well over primary season we've had and looking forward to the general election in November. All right, so this is on everybody's mind. We've talked a little bit about it before but the prospects for a third-party candidate, we're seeing, you know, again, large-scale dissatisfaction with the two front runners, according to the polls. People who would be regarded as slightly long-shot candidates like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. polling in around 10% of the low teens, far-left candidate like Cornell West in low single digits. And then, you know, everybody's interested to know whether this no-labels idea, this kind of moderate centrist candidate who could come through the middle and take votes from both sides, as well as from independents, the name that's obviously mentioned most on everybody's lips is Joe Manchin, but there are others too. Where do you stand, Doug, on the prospects for a third-party candidate? Jerry, you're absolutely right. There is a broad-based support for a third-party independent alternative. The problem is, other than Robert F. Kennedy Jr., there is no candidate who scores into double digits. Robert F. Kennedy gets anywhere between 10 and the low 20s, but when I've polled the alternatives that you propose there, in low to mid-single digits. And it is not clear to me at this point, notwithstanding the unpopularity of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, that there is room in this process at this late date for a third-party candidate other than Robert F. Kennedy, who can get a lot of votes but is very unlikely to be elected president. So you're skeptical about the idea of a Joe Manchin. I know the poll, as you say, exactly as the polls show, so far as they mean anything, when people are asked about Manchin, he gets a very low number. But I suppose the counter argument is, 
You know, his name recognition is probably still pretty low. He hasn't launched a campaign. This is literally a putative one that's only being talked about really in Washington and in, in the media by people like you and me, that if no labels, which could be the organization behind him, has quite a lot of money. There's a lot of interest. There's potentially a lot of money, I think, from donors and others who would like a challenge against Trump and Biden. So I'm struck that you seem pretty skeptical of any support for that kind of a candidate. Yeah, I am. The question in my mind is... Can there be the conversion of the broad-based generalized support for a third party into a practical campaign like the last one that was at all successful, Ross Perot, in 1992 when he got close to 20%? I don't see that as practical and possible now, Jerry, though it could well happen. All right, so just talk then generally then about what you expect to be the context, if you like, or the factors that will determine the way people will vote in November. We're a long way away still. On one level, we're not that far away. We're nine months away. But as we know, an awful lot can happen in that time. But as you see it right now, and again, you're pretty skeptical about a third party candidate. It looks like Trump has more or less wrapped up the Republican nomination and Biden has wrapped up the Democratic nomination. We're in for probably the longest ever general election campaign that certainly I can recall. You've been around longer than I have, but covered American politics for the last 30 years. I can't recall an election campaign this long. And and in some ways, this has been the inevitable field for at least the last year. So, you know, we're looking at two candidates who have been their party's front runners for the best part of two years or even longer by the time, you know, we get to the election. First of all, let me ask you, how does that long campaign, this long general election campaign, which is in effect, as we say, getting underway, how does that affect the race? I think it's only going to increase polarization increase division, increase both candidates' negative ratings. It is really the first time in my experience, I don't go back to the Grover Cleveland campaign, though I got a long history, where you have two incumbents effectively running against each other, two unpopular incumbents. I think it's going to further degrade our system, weaken America both at home and abroad, and ultimately show the real uh, instability of our political system. Why do you say that? I mean, there'd be others who might say, well, actually, you know, having these two candidates out there will really give people an opportunity. I suspect the problem is that most people's minds are already made up, but it will really give them an opportunity to really test these candidates. And by the way, what kind of a campaign will it be? I mean, Joe Biden, of course, famously in 2020, largely ran not so much a Rose Garden campaign, but a basement campaign. Now he is in occupation of the White House. You know, do you expect a kind of a Rose Garden campaign from him? I mean, how do you expect it to unfold in ways that actually might energize people? Sure. Well, I think they're going to try to energize people on two things. One, issues like abortion. And second, the fear of Donald J. Trump. And I think from Trump's point of view, it will be a campaign against Biden, who, as you correctly point out, Jerry, has very low approval ratings, especially on the economy and the southern border, combined with a sense that somehow he, Donald Trump, and the ultra-MAGA wing of the Republican Party are under siege from a democracy that is working systematically to prosecute and cheat people like Trump out of their just rewards, just desserts, 
and in his mind, fairly won elections that were stolen from him. What about the trials? Obviously, everybody's in, so we still don't quite know exactly when these trials are going to take place. There's a lot of legal process to be gone through before the first trials start. There was a pretty striking number, I think, in the Iowa entrance, caucus's entrance poll, which I think said as many as 40 percent of people said they wouldn't vote for Trump if he'd been convicted. Now, again, that's a hypothetical. and We don't know what that actually translates into. But it's been the conventional wisdom for the last year that all these trials have enormously helped Trump establishing his supremacy in the Republican primary. Could they have a different effect in the general election? Yeah, I think they could. I think the general election, which is a very different electorate from the primary electorate. I think the general election, the trials, the harping on the allegedly stolen election, which doesn't, in my judgment, and most people's judgment, doesn't appear to have been stolen at all. I think that's going to hurt Trump. And I think what you cited earlier, Jerry, his tone and his speech really makes him seem as a polarizing and bitter person rather than someone with a forward-looking platform. And I think if the election is about him talking about the past and his resentments, and if Biden is focused on the threats to democracy rather than the issues facing in America, the real challenges, then I think it's going to not be edifying. Hopefully, both men We'll talk about the real problems facing the country. And I think if that happens, we can have a better election than any of us hope or anticipate. Well, that leads me very neatly then on to my final question, Doug, which is, again, this is the the kind of the election I think many people in the country, not everybody, to be fair, but many people in the country are looking forward to with a great sense of trepidation, unhappiness. We see a deeply polarized nation fighting it out between these two candidates who've been there did it four years ago, ended very bitterly last time. Neither of them seems to be in any mood to kind of change their tone from what their message has been for so long. Is there any way we can end this podcast, Doug, on a more upbeat note? Can you see any event, any circumstances, any trajectory for the campaign that ends up being a bit more uplifting than I think what most people currently are expecting? Look, frankly, I wouldn't predict it and I wouldn't bet on it, But hopefully Trump can be persuaded, and indeed Biden as well, to talk about their differences on the economy, their differences on foreign policy, on Ukraine and Russia, on the Middle East. And I think if that happens, and I think it's a big if, and I think unlikely to happen, but I would honestly love to have both sides encourage their candidates, their principles to do that. It is important for America because As I say, ultimately, we're not just Democrats and Republicans. We are Americans, and we are in the midst of enormous problems that you and I in the past have talked about that have only been exacerbated. And hopefully, if we can talk about them and debate them, we will have a better outcome. I don't bet on it. I don't think it'll happen. But hope remains strong and fervent. Thank you, Doug. And again, amen to that. And it's not as though the country doesn't face real challenges at home and abroad that really do need serious debate and serious consideration election. Doug Schoen, thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, have a great week and thank you. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.